Our scripture reading for today, Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read the entire chapter, although my focus of attention today will be the first three verses of this fourth chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in excuse me, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. May you know that blessing, even in the reading of his word today. You may be seated. I think one of the greatest blessings flowing from, and because of the greatest blessing of all, something I will mention shortly, believe me, but before I will mention what one of the greatest blessings flowing from and because of the greatest blessings of all, dare I ask you, dare I ask you as I begin this fourth chapter of Romans, dare I ask you, dare I say what you think it is? Dare I ask you, do you know what I am? Do you know what it is? Dare I say, do you personally believe what is the greatest blessing of all? Greater than anything this sin-blinded world would give you as the greatest blessing. Especially and not limited to the foolish idea that winning a lottery is the greatest blessing imaginable. For if you wanted one example among many that could be given to show you how truly lost in sin America really is, it is seen in the amount of money spent on lottery tickets. 
But this is one of many examples that could be given. But for anyone who has understood and savingly believe what Paul has written under the infallible and inerrant inspiration of God the Holy Spirit in the first three chapters of this letter to the believers in the pagan capital of the lost pagan empire, the city of Rome, the greatest blessing, the greatest blessing is God's sovereign gift of saving faith and repentance in the biblical and saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May you be able to personally confess this glorious truth because you know the blessing of this greatest of all gifts from God to those Christ died for because you have personally come to see and confess and understand the confession that the Apostle Paul writes to his brother in the Lord Timothy, who I do not doubt would confess the same thing if you had been able to ask him. First Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That God would save a wretched, hell-deserving sinner like I am. Amazing grace. Amazing love. Amazing pity. But I think in addition to this greatest of blessings, true personal saving belief in the one and only saving gospel of God that Paul has been meticulously describing and defended after declaring what he does back in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the two verses that introduce the truth of why the saving gospel of God is mankind's only hope of acceptance with the living, true, and only Lord God of the Scriptures. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But one of the greatest blessings, in addition to the amazing, free, and sovereign gift of God's redeeming love that flows from and is an effect in the new life of someone for whom Christ died, is something that is not only a great blessing, but also a great challenge. Is it the greatest challenge to the true, redeemed, and saved child of God declared by the words of the Apostle Paul to the believers in Philippi? Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 of his letter from God to them and all true believers until Christ returns. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Believer, have you faced the awesome truth that once the Lord God has brought you from spiritual death to new spiritual life in Christ Jesus through regeneration, he can and he does begin to work in you. He begins to work in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. But what is it that is that Almighty God works in you, believer, that is well-pleasing in his sight? What is well-pleasing in the sight of the living, true, and only God? That he works in you by his grace and the power of his spirit. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, through, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. God's good pleasure is to work the perfect image of his beloved and only begotten son in those he died for. A work that begins at regeneration and will be concluded at your glorification when you die or the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But how is this amazing work of redeeming love seen in the new life of someone for whom Christ died? Well, here again, what Paul does, what Paul says in verses 5 and 6 of 2 Corinthians 10. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalt, exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 
and having in, in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. I'll try and illustrate what Paul is gloriously teaching here in three ways. First, did Jesus ever think anything that his heavenly Father would have disapproved of? Perish the thought. Perish the thought. Have you? Have I? Have you ever thought something that you could say, God, how can I have such a God-dishonoring thought? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Every time you are convicted of a thought that you know from the life and words of Jesus, that you know he would never have thought, you are being reminded again of how much you need Christ's finished work alone to make you right with God. But also the glorious truth that the Lord must be continuing to work in you. Why? Because when you were unsaved, you gave absolutely no thought as to whether or not what you were thinking was pleasing to God. Something true of all the unsaved around you. Because the unsaved give no thought to whether or not what they are thinking is pleasing to the Lord God of the Scriptures. But also, believer, the Lord must be continuing to work in you because if you were glorified, what will you never think again? Any thought displeasing to and dishonoring to the living, true, and only Lord God of the Scriptures. Second, did Jesus ever say anything that his heavenly Father would have disapproved of? Again, perish the thought. Have you? Have you ever misused your mouth? What did, why did God's prophet Isaiah know he was undone, an undoneness that only the Lord could have graciously and mercifully saved him from? Because he knew that he was a man of unclean lips and he lived among a people of unclean lips. Every time you misuse the mouth given to you by the Lord God, you are being reminded of how much you need Christ's finished work. Alone to make you right with God. But also that the Lord must be continuing to work in you. Why? Because the unsaved give no thought to whether or not what comes out of their mouth agrees with what the Lord God reveals and declares in his written word. Have you ever had to face that in the workplace? They don't care about how they use their mouths. How many truly saved sinners who were former teachers and promoters of the demonic lie of evolution are now ashamed of their teaching such a God-dishonoring, man-demeaning teaching and grieve for the number of people they taught this lie of the devil to. But praise and thank God Believer, for every time you are convicted of misusing your mouth in a way that you could never see your blessed Lord and Savior doing. Why? Because the Lord must be continuing to work in you. Because if you are glorified, what will you never do? Speak a sinful word again. No words displeasing and dishonoring to the living, true, and only Lord God of the Scriptures. Third, did Jesus ever do anything with his physical body that would have displeased and dishonored his heavenly Father? Again, perish the thought. Have you? Have you? Every time you do, you are convicted of doing something. You are being reminded of how much you need the penal substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ alone to make you right with God, but also the glorious truth that the Lord must be continuing to work in you. Why? Because the unsaved don't care about whether or not they're using the bodies that God has given them and belongs to God and not them. The unsaved could care less about whether or not they're using the gift of their body from God in a way that honors and glorifies God. 
But also, believer, the Lord God must be continuing to work in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Why? Because when you are glorified, what will you never do again? You will never use your new resurrection and glorified body in any way that dishonors the living, true, and only God who has graciously and mercifully given it to you because of the finished work of Christ for his glorified bride. Made up of redeemed and glorified sinners from every tribe and people and language and tongue throughout time, salvation is of the Lord. For after the Lord regenerates a sinner for whom, the, for whom Christ died, he is able to begin and does begin conforming him or her to the image of his beloved and only begotten son. Because he is able to do this because the sinner for whom Christ died is now justified in his sight by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. What is called sanctification is the work of God begun in the justified life of the sinner for whom Christ died that will be finished in glorification. When you're a glorified believer at your death or the return of Christ, think of it. You will never think anything. You will never say anything. You will never do anything that is not pleasing to God. And a display of love towards him and all those redeemed by his amazing grace and mercy to enjoy the holy presence of God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, by now, it would not surprise me you were saying, what do these glorious truths and realities have to do with the fact I'm beginning a new chapter in Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, especially Romans chapter 4? The letter where Paul has been meticulously guided by God the Holy Spirit to write what he has written so that true confessing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will have until the Lord returns to receive his glorified and perfected bride to himself, dare I say, an exhaustive and complete declaration and defense of the one and only saving gospel of the living, true, and only God. Why have I introduced this fourth chapter of Romans in this way? Well, let me put the reason I have in the form of a question. And before I ask this question, don't just consider the times that you are presently living in and through. Because you are living in and through them. For the time is coming apart from the return of the Lord that your believing sojourn in this dying world will end. And when this takes place, you will realize on a level incomprehensible now how important bringing every thought into the obedience of Christ is when you see him as he is. But don't just consider the sin-warped and ruined times you are living in and through. But consider for a moment, what were the conditions that the believers in the pagan capital of the pagan Roman Empire were living in and through? Because they're not with us today. They're with their Lord and Savior. What were their conditions? Because, let's be honest, we have our sports temples. We do. We have our sports temples where men and sadly women are physically and mentally damaged for the entertainment of the masses in things like professional football, boxing, and mixed martial arts. But what did the believers in first century Rome know about? The first century believer had the Colosseum where the masses were entertained with gladiatorial competitions, not just where the loser was counted out, but unto death. A bread and circus entertainment system that would eventually use confessing believers in Christ to keep the bloodlust lost residents of Rome entertained. Yet into this stronghold of Satan, into this stronghold of Satan, the Lord moves Paul to write to believers there, declaring to them the truth of the saving gospel of God, as I have tried to show in the previous three chapters. But what does Paul do in this fourth chapter? What does Paul do in this fourth chapter? He introduces the justified by faith alone saved Jew. Who? Who? Abraham. Abraham, dare I ask you a question now? How important to you is a correct understanding of the historical Abraham? 
How important to you is a correct understanding of the historical Abraham? The lost idolater called out of the idolatrous Ur of the Chaldees. For how many, even in the churches today, is a correct and biblical understanding of Abraham almost non-existent? If not there at all. Yet if God's work of sanctification is bringing every thought into the obedience of Christ, then it is, that means thinking about the biblical and historical Abraham biblically. Abraham is not introduced at the end of the 11th chapter of Genesis in the following chapters because Moses needed a certain number of words and chapters to please his publisher. No, he is revealed for your benefit, believer. He's revealed for your protection, believer. He's revealed for your instruction, believer. What does Paul write later in Romans 15, verse 4? For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And who is singled out for extended mention in the Old Testament? Abraham. So if you're going to have the hope that the comfort and patience of the Old Testament that he can and does provide to true believers in Christ a correct understanding of the life of Abraham must play a part in this. Because Paul focuses in, on him in this fourth chapter. Yet how many, even in the churches today, would say, who needs to know anything about a dead Jew who lived called Abraham, who lived millennia ago? Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? Put whatever fear porn headline or you heard or read last week into that statement. Haven't you heard that talk show hosts want to talk about everything and anything else than actual redemptive history? correctly and savingly as Paul uses the believer Abraham to show you. Ah, preacher, who has time to correctly think about Abraham when the price of heating oil and electricity is sucking up my disposable income so I can't buy another lottery ticket? Yeah, what am I about to do today? I'm about to start today my attempt and desire to rightly divide this fourth chapter of Romans in which Paul refers to Abraham seven times. Seven times out of the nine times he refers to Abraham in his letter to the believers in Rome. Abraham is referred to 69 times in the New Testament. Moses only slightly more at 77. How many professing Christians would say Abraham is not important? despite the fact that Paul focuses on Abraham in this fourth chapter. As I said, seven of the nine times that Paul refers to Abraham is in this one chapter, which means 10% of the references to Abraham in the New Testament are in this one chapter. The chapter that follows the section where Paul is meticulously shown that acceptance with God on that great day that is ahead for all of us, Judgment Day, is by faith alone in Christ alone. Romans 3 verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Yet how many think that a right understanding of Abraham is crucial to a right understanding of the saving gospel of God? The infallibly inspired apostle Paul did. Do you? Do I? Do the pseudo-Christian countries that almost all, if, that, not, that most, if not all of us, who will hear this message grew up in believe this? Because dare I ask you, how many of you took history classes in school? Oh, your hands are going up. Good. How many of you took history classes in school? How many of you were even taught that a man with the name of Abraham existed? How many of you were taught the mythical story of man's descent from apes? 
Yet what do you see in this fourth chapter of Romans? Paul not only introducing Abraham, but using the historical Abraham to further show and prove the truth of justification by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Even though the apostate false Roman Catholic Church an increasing number of false evangelicals will seek to deceive who knows how many by teaching that Paul and James contradict one another rather than reinforce the truth that they are both teaching. Truth that I will address and mention more than once as I proceed through this fourth chapter and seek to rightly divide it because scripture cannot contradict scripture. And if anyone teaches that James and Paul are in conflict with one another or contradict one another, they are simply showing they are dangerous false teachers that you would be very foolish to listen to. Which is why you have Paul pronouncing his anathemas against such false teachers like those who were seeking to deceive and mislead the churches in Galatia, modern day Turkey, Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which he have received, let him be accursed. For the, the absolutely last thing that James is doing by referring to Abraham the way he does is to contradict or conflict with what Paul declares about Abraham in this fourth chapter of Romans. For there are no contradictions in the Bible. There are no paradoxes in the Bible. They only exist in the minds of unsaved men or believers who are grieving the Holy Spirit, showing that they're allowing their remaining fleshly mind to fight against the work of the Spirit in their understanding of the saving gospel of God. Because no one on judgment day who is accepted by God on that great and awesome day is going to be confessing that they're being an elect sheep or a confessing sheep, a confessing sheep or an accepted sheep is because of the finished work of Christ and something they have done. Truth seen in the life of the one that Paul focuses your attention on in this fourth chapter of Romans. Friends, Are you seeking to bring every thought into the obedience of Christ? If you are, you accept the reality that you have an infallible record of actual human history given to you in the Bible. Necessary for you to have a right understanding of actual human history today. Abraham was a man justified by faith alone before God and who would testify to the truth of this justifying faith before mankind is recorded in the Bible when years later he would be tried by God to testify to the reality of his saving faith by offering up his beloved son on the altar on Mount Moriah. Having come to the believing realization that God's promise to me is through Isaac, therefore even if he is trying my faith by telling me to offer up my beloved son Isaac on Mount Moriah, he must be able to raise him from the dead in order to fulfill that promise. Even as Abraham testified to Isaac as recorded in Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. Truth that Jesus would use to point to himself in John 8. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Friends, remember, when you are reading the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, you are not reading a record of a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing to quote Shakespeare's Macbeth. No, you are reading a record of God's plan of redemption in space-time history. What does Paul write at the end of this letter to the Romans? The verse I mentioned a few moments ago, Romans 15, verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. For who does the Lord introduce you to in the only infallible book of human history that you have after revealing to you human history in the creation of the universe? 
and the earth over the space of six historical days, not unknown ages, after revealing to you the creation of man, male and female, made in the image of God on the sixth day, after revealing to you the fall and rebellion of man in Genesis 3, after revealing to you the impact of the worldwide flood in Noah's day on the whole world and Noah and his family in particular in chapters 6 to 9 of Genesis, after revealing to you the confusion of man's languages at the Tower of Babel and subsequent scattering of mankind, after all these historical events, who does your infallible human history teacher God introduce to you? Who? Abraham. He introduces you to Abraham, first called Abram, an idolater called out called by God out of the year of the Chaldees, who, show, who showed you he needed the saving mercy of God as much as you and I do by his attempting to protect himself twice by lying about Sarah being his wife. Even as the devil was attempting to thwart God's plan of redemption through this sinful stumbling of Abraham. But what does Paul do in Romans 4? He focuses on the truth that Abraham believed God with the corresponding glorious gospel reality. Verse 3 that I will return to. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted unto him for righteousness. But why does Paul introduce Abraham in his declaration in defense of the saving gospel of God of justification by faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. Why does he do this? To expose the dangerous and the deadly error of thinking that the works righteous religions are ways of acceptance with God rather than damnation by God. Now why do I say this? Well, who does Paul introduce in verse 1 of chapter 4? Abraham. And what does he ask about him? He asks a question. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Now Paul is singling out Abraham to his unbelieving Jewish brethren who prided themselves in being what? Physical descendants of Abraham to show the absolute damnable folly of thinking that physical descent from Abraham has any saving efficacy or benefit. It does not. The very thing you see Jesus having to deal with in the Gospel of John. John 8, verses 31 to 39. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, this would be the, the ones who weren't believing in him. Verse 33, they answered him, We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. Did they forget about the <laughs> Egypt? We've never been in bondage to anyone. Oh, 400 years in Egypt, that's not bondage? We've never been in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed. And he knew that they were descendants of Abraham, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, than him. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. They would be believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham testified to his need of a sinless substitute, as Jesus would declare later in this eighth chapter of John, a verse I referred to earlier, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Yet his physical descendants, who Jesus is speaking to, would kill him. Rather than testifying to their absolute need of him. A sobering and horrible truth seen in all works, works righteousness, religions, especially Judaism, Islam, and Roman Catholicism. Truth I will return to because of what Paul writes about Abraham in just these three opening verses of Romans 4. For remember... What Paul has been doing, what is he continuing to do with his making this reference to Abraham? Paul is continuing to show you 
the absolute soul-destroying heretical nature of justification before God by the deeds of the law. And to show this, who does he use as an historical example? Abraham. Verse 1 again, what shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? Did Abraham gain acceptance? Did Abraham find acceptance? Did Abraham obtain acceptance with God through something he did? Did Abraham contribute to his acceptance with God through something he did? How does Paul answer this question? He answers it in two ways. He answers it negatively or religiously. In verse 2, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. And he answers it positively or according to the scriptures of God in verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. Friends, remember something. Whenever anyone, I don't care who it is, Whenever anyone introduces works into the conversation about how someone is accepted by God, you know that they do not understand or believe the saving gospel of God. Oh, he was a good man. Oh, she was a good woman as they sit in a funeral service for that person. Oh, realize that person is not talking about or believing the biblical and saving gospel of God. Why? Because if the person they are talking about was their mythical good person, they wouldn't be at their funeral. For as I have said more than once, if you want to show to yourself, to others, and to Almighty God before the Lord Jesus Christ returns to usher in the final judgment of all mankind, just do one simple thing. Don't die. That's all you got to do. Just don't die. All a person has to do to show that they do not need to repent and believe the gospel before Christ returns is not die. Everyone who dies before this history as we know it ending event is showing that they were a sinner that only Christ Jesus could have saved and did save if they biblically repented of their sins and believed the one and only saving gospel of God before they died. The the amazing and sovereign mercy and grace of God being the reason for their being accepted by God. Not anything they have done before they died. Salvation is of the Lord, not man. But how many have died? How many have died denying their need to repent of their sins and believe the one and only saving gospel of God because they deceive themselves and others at the funerals of a dead loved one by saying he was a good whatever. She was a good whatever. Totally ignoring the truth that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through and because of Jesus Christ our Lord, for those who are believing alone on Him for acceptance with God. The wonder of the saving gospel of God is the one, is the one who did nothing worthy of death, was willing to die in order to be the sinless substitute for every one of His sinful people who deserve to suffer the second death in the lake of fire, but will not because of His death for them. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what is Paul doing in Romans 4? He is using the example of Abraham, the one that his proud, lost, religious Jewish brethren were foolishly using their physical relationship to to deny their absolute need to believe the saving gospel of God of justification before God by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Is justification by the works of the Lord something that Abraham can be used for to justify and endorse this false soul-damning belief? No. Why? Verse 2. Verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God but not before God. Now here, in addition to Romans 6, is where you see that Paul and James are in agreement. For James is not dealing with justification before God. That is, giving evidence 
of having been accepted by God by faith alone. James is dealing with whether or not a person who professes to believe in God has a right to rejoice in this truth before men, but not before God. For James is warning hypocritical false believers who talk about believing in God and His saving gospel, but give no evidence of having truly done so by a changed life. James is not talking about justification before God, which is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. He is talking about, does a professing believer have a right to say he is justified before God by faith alone if his life before man does not demonstrate that God, God's, demonstrate the effects of God's free gift of justification? James says, no. For no one will be able to glory in themselves before God that because of something they have done, God will accept them. It is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. But how does a freely justified believer demonstrate or display the truth of his free justification before God, before men, by their changed attitude? By their changed attitude towards what they think is right to think. By their changed attitude, by their changed attitude, by what they think is right to say. See, the non-believer, I don't care what I say. I shoot from the hip. I shoot from the lip. I don't care what I say. And how many believers have gone to another believer, even a non-believer, and said, I shouldn't have said that to you. Please forgive me. A changed attitude towards what you think is right to think. A changed attitude towards what you think is right to say and a changed attitude to what you think is right to do. That is, a freely justified believer will see the purpose of the amazing grace and mercy of God is not just to deliver a believer from the penalty of sin, but progressively from the power of sin, as seen by what Paul says in Romans 6.21, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, the sinful thoughts used to have no problem thinking you are now ashamed of and grieved and broken for when the Holy Spirit convicts you of them. The sinful words you used to have no problem speaking whereof you are now ashamed of and are grieved for and broken for when the Holy Spirit convicts you of them because they are offensive and grievous to the God who has saved you and redeemed you. The sinful actions you used to have no problem engaging in and are now ashamed of and grieved and broken for when the Holy Spirit convicts you of them. A believer doesn't glory in any God-honoring thought, any God-honoring word, any God-honoring God deed by seeing any of them as justifying themselves before God or needing to be added to the finished work of God, justifying you by the finished work of Christ alone and what you have done. What a horrible contradiction. This is pure and adulterated 100% demonic heresy. What do you see these things as, believer? You see them as evidences. You see them as evidences. Make your calling and election sure. You see them as evidences of the Lord graciously and mercifully working in you the truth that Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, the very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. Believer, every time you think a thought that you have biblical justification for saying this pleases and glorifies the God of my salvation. Every time, believer, you say something that you have biblical justification for saying this pleases and glorifies the God of my salvation. Believer, every time you do something that you have biblical justification for being able to say I can glorify and honor the God of my salvation in the doing of this, you have reason not to glorify yourself. You have reason not to glorify yourself, not to foolishly and dangerously think that these contribute to your being made right with God, but all these are evidences of your having been made right with God by faith alone and are reasons to praise and thank the Lord for every single one of them. For without his having begun his good work in you through his sovereign regeneration and justification of you through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone and his cross of penal substitution, you would never have desired to think, say, or do anything pleasing 
to the living, true, and only Lord of Lord God. For you came into this world with a mind at enmity with God. You had a desire to think thoughts dishonoring to God. You had a heart desiring to say things dishonoring to God. You had a life desiring to do things dishonoring to God. You had no desire to think thoughts honoring to God, say things honoring to God, or do anything honoring to God. And friends, I don't dispute in the least that lost men can praise other men for what they have done and do. Never asking themselves, is what they have done and are doing Has it been done and is it being done to the glory of God alone? Oh, I have no problem in saying that lost sinner man will justify and glorify himself before other men by the things that they do. How many dead now awaiting final judgment presidents made plans to have libraries built to extol and remind people of all the things they saw as praiseworthy before they died. How many foolish, lost, well-known sinners are more concerned with how man's fallible record of them will remember them, but are totally indifferent to the infallible and final judgment that God will find them in? Oh, I don't deny that there are numerous dangerous and false biographies, better called hagiographies, where these men are praised where only the outward supposedly good things are recorded about how dead world leaders conducted themselves. But friends, what does the Bible record? What does the Bible record? It records the sinful failures of the patriarchs of God. There's Noah, a man who walked with God getting drunk. Not for our imitation, but for our instruction. Noah found grace in the sight of God, or he would have been damned with the world he preached righteousness in. There is David, a man after God's own heart, committing adultery and murder, not for our imitation, but for our instruction in sin. Has my mother conceived me? If I think that I'll be able to present to God a righteousness that he will accept apart from her in addition to the righteousness of Christ alone, I am lost and lost forever and rightly so. Because such dangerous religious thinking is a denial of the saving gospel of God. Because what does Paul write to put the axe to the root of this popular soul-destroying teaching that just because fallen men think their works will be able to justify themselves before God or contribute to their justification before God. What does Paul do? He quotes scripture. He quotes scripture. Friends, it doesn't matter if the whole world rises up. It doesn't matter if the whole world rises up and denies the truth of justification by faith alone. If the whole world rises up and get ang- gets angry at the truth of justification by faith alone. Even persecutes unto death those who hold forth the truth of justification before God by faith alone. None of these foolish things will change the truth of what the scriptures declare as to how Abraham and all true confessing believers in the saving gospel of God are accepted by God today, tomorrow, forever, and on judgment day by faith alone in the finished justifying work of Christ alone. Verse 3, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was credited to his account for righteousness. It was imputed to his account for righteousness. If I dare put it this way, Abraham was showing by God's gift of saving faith or belief to him that his name had been written down in the Lamb's book of life from all eternity. Truth that he testified to having by faith years later when he was willing to offer up his only son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Abraham was showing years later that his believing God years before was a true and saving belief by offering up Isaac. Not that his offering up Isaac added anything to or contributed anything to to the fact that he had already been justified before God by faith alone. Because if you were able to ask Abraham when when he was coming down from that mountain 
Abraham, did what you just did on Mount Moriah, willingly offering your son, did that add to or contribute to your being made right with God? He would have said to you, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because you are preaching a false message and a gospel-denying message, one worthy of the anathemas that Paul the Apostle would pronounce against it years later. Again, Paul and James are not enemies, but friends. There is a world of difference, if I might put it this way, between someone professing to have faith in the finished work of Christ alone for acceptance with God and confessing the finished work of Christ alone for acceptance with God. For how many who profess to have saving faith in God confess the biblical and saving gospel of God? How many wax eloquent about the love of God? But if you were to ask them, how did the living, true, and only God display this love that you promote and push so incorrectly? How many of these false love pushers have never preached on 1 John 4.10? Herein is love, that we love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, if God loved me just the way I was when I was dead in trespasses and sins, thinking things about God, myself, and reality that were not true, but false, saying things about God, myself, and reality that were not true but false, doing things in the presence of God that I showed that I neither loved him, myself, or my fellow man, then there was no need for the living God of the Lord God of the Scriptures to send his beloved and only begotten Son into this world to be the propitiation for all my sinful thoughts, all my sinful words, and all my sinful deeds. There is no need for true saving belief in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And what Jesus declared in John 3 is not true, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. So what he declares at the end of John 3 is the truth. John 3 verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. How many are walking around thinking that the love of God abides on them, but in reality the wrath of God is abiding on them? Because they're going on in their sinful thoughts, sinful words, and sinful deeds. Oh, there is a false demonic, false love being proclaimed by many false preachers in America today. How did Abraham show that his being justified by faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone was not just words that had no saving efficacy and meaning in his believing heart? The Lord tried his justifying faith by telling him to offer up Isaac. The one through whom the promise of God would be fulfilled, Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, by faith. When he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. James uses Abraham as an example, not to to deny justification before God by faith alone, but to illustrate the fact that the Lord will try that faith to display it being true justifying faith. Abraham is an example of what James writes of in his first chapter. James 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. God, let patience ever perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Abraham was adding nothing to God's sovereign justification of him by faith alone when he willingly offered up Isaac. He was testifying to having been justified by faith alone in the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God would provide. Even as Abraham testified as he was walking up that mountain. And friends, who can measure the joy? Who can measure the joy that Abraham must have had coming down that mountain? Having seen the truth that what Abraham professed, God will provide. He did provide. He did provide. My Savior provided the lamb. (laughs) 
truth every confessing believer testifies to in the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ to you. He's provided my lamb. He provided the lamb I needed to make me acceptable in his sight, his only begotten son. The Lord has provided the lamb that I need to make me fit to meet God, his beloved and only begotten son. Now, Paul will go on to reinforce this truth in the biblical in the example of the biblical Abraham and not the false Abraham so popular in the saving religions of man today. Now, what do I mean by this as I close? What do I mean by this as I close? Believer, praise and thank God for him moving upon the mind of the apostle Paul to write about the historical Abraham, the biblical Abraham. The justified by faith alone, Abraham, in this chapter. Why do I say this? Because what are the three world religions of man who dare to misrepresent and misuse the biblical Abraham in their soul-destroying, God-denying, gospel-denying religions? World religions that you would have to be addicted to cat videos never to have heard anything about in this world today. Yet every one of them shows by what they preach and teach that they are dishonoring this man of faith, Abraham. What three world religions am I referring to? All of which libel and slander the biblical Abraham. Libel is something written about a person that is not true. Slander is speaking something about a person that is not true. What world religions of mankind libel and slander the biblical Abraham by teaching that justification before God is not by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone? How many of you have heard of Judaism? How many of you have heard of Islam? How many of you have heard of Roman Catholicism? Every one of these soul-destroying, gospel-denying religions, both in their public teaching and written documents, libel and slander the biblical and believing Abraham and the saving gospel of God that he believed. For neither Judaism, Islam, or Roman Catholicism believe and teach what the scriptures of God teach and declare what Abraham believed. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Friends, Paul is going to continue to use the believer Abraham to show you how important and unique the biblical and saving gospel of God is in comparison to all the soul-destroying, gospel-denying religions of men are, including Judaism, Islam, and Roman Catholicism. What are you believing today? What are you believing today? The saving gospel of God? The saving gospel of God that Abraham believed? Or a soul-destroying religion of men, regardless of its name? How many, even in the churches, know nothing about the importance of the biblical, able, a, biblical Abraham for a right understanding of the saving gospel of God? How many dishonor the believing Abraham, even as they dishonor the believing Mary by using him in their false and dangerous religions and teachings? For remember something, believer. However popular the religions of man are, be they Judaism, Islam, and Roman Catholicism, they distort and deny the truth of the biblical Abraham. Or the 9,896 other ones. And regardless of how many believe and teach them, none of them and all of them together will ever save a single soul believing them. But each of them and all of them together will damn the souls of those believing them forever. The saving gospel that God, God the saving gospel of God that Abraham believed is the only message given by God whereby we must be saved. There's no third option. 
If men do not repent of their gospel-denying, Christ-denying, God-dishonoring religions and philosophies and believe the one and only saving gospel of God, they will all be like the rich man who talked to Abraham after he died, having to face forever their folly of trusting in and believing in everything and anything but the one and only saving gospel of God. There will be a great gulf fixed forever, friends. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns between those who have believed the saving gospel of God to the saving of their souls and those who have not. On what side? On what side? On what side of this great eternal fixed gulf will you find yourself on that great day that no one will miss? What will that great day when all mankind stands before the Lord of glory reveal about what you believed and what I believed about how a sinner is made right with God? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Do you believe the one and only saving message from God that Abraham believed? Let us pray. O oh Lord, how royally messed up is the mind of man when he will talk about everything and anything else but the saving gospel of Christ. And man can be fascinated with the history of other men, write their books, their tomes about past presidents, past leaders, Caesars, and Alexander the Great, and all these other men of history. But they give little thought to a man called Abraham, a man of history who showed us the wonderful truth of justification by faith alone. Help us to walk in that faith, even as he did. In his day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.